This is White Collared, the podcast, season one, episode 13, Front Man. Welcome to another episode of White Collared, the podcast, which is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series, White Collar. My name is Eric Alton Glenn Hilliard. If you have been following this podcast and find it at all interesting, the best thing you can do to help people find it, to help improve its popularity, is just simply tell a friend. That does more to share the news and information and awareness of this podcast than just about anything else that you can do. Now, there is one more thing that you can do that can help, and that is to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or what have you. Now, if you have been following this podcast, you know that I'm not really all that big on ratings and reviews because, quite frankly, they really don't help the rankings or help people find the podcast as many people would suggest. However, ratings and reviews do have some value in what is called social proof. When somebody's looking through podcasts and they see one that looks interesting, they want to know if other people have listened to it and what they thought of it. And the more people that they can see have listened to it and have positive things to say about it, the more likely they are to give it a try. So if you have been enjoying this podcast at all, Please do me the favor of taking a few minutes to leave that rating and review so that when other people do find the podcast, they can know what you thought of it. Now, there is one person I would like to thank who has left a rating. Unfortunately, I don't know their name. The rating was left in Apple Podcasts. And unfortunately, if you leave a rating but don't leave a review, I don't get to know who did that. So to that unnamed person, if that's you, thank you very much for that rating. I appreciate it. I just wish I could acknowledge you by name. Okay, let's get into the episode. Frontman first aired on March 2nd, 2010, was written by show creator Jeff Easton and Rashad Raisani, and directed by Michael Smith. Ryan Wilkes, the suspect in the kidnapping of a teenage girl, is an old acquaintance of Neil's. Because of that relationship, FBI agent Kimberly Rice, who is in charge of the kidnap investigation, asks to borrow Neil. But Rice has set Neil up, having secretly made a deal with Wilkes to trade Neil for the girl. Meanwhile, Neil is still trying to convince Alex to tell him where the music box is and to help him steal it, but she keeps making demands on him before she will agree to help. The episode begins with Neil out on the patio of his apartment there at June's house, and he is researching the music box. He's got a map out. He's got documents. It looks like he is tracing the movement of the music box throughout its history since it first disappeared, or perhaps it's more correct to say he's investigating the possible movement or what evidence he can find of its movements after it had disappeared from the uh, collection of, of Catherine the Great. And as he's working on that, Alex shows up. Got your message. I'm here. What do you want, Neil? Want the music box. I think you have a memory problem. Because I said that as long as you're a fed, I'm not telling you where it is. And there's nothing to talk about. I'll make it worth your while. You need me to get it. No, I don't. Then why don't you have it already? I'll steal it and give it to you. Just like that? Just like that. When I'm done with it. Neither was a catch. What's this really about? You get the box in the end. It's my offer. Okay. If you figure out how to get the anklet off. 
I'm not wearing this as a fashion accessory. When the time comes, I need to know that you can get off your leash. Otherwise, you're a liability. I'll come back tomorrow at 6, lose the blinking jewelry, and you'll get what you need. Neil is trying to convince Alex to give him the information he needs to find the music box. And the tact he takes is, you need me to help you get it. And she says, of course, no, I don't. Neil's response is, well, if you don't need me, then why don't you have it? The answer to that question, or at least what was given as the answer to that question previously in the episode Home Invasion was, she gave up on it. She's not interested in the music box. She's not interested in pursuing it. Now, in that episode, her her response, her statement that she gave up on the music box a long time ago was a bit ambiguous. The way it was said gives the impression that she she just lost interest in it. She She was no longer interested in pursuing it. It was kind of the lost cause, but it could have been that she gave up on it because she didn't have the wherewithal to do it herself and to, to recover it, to steal it back, whatever, however you want to term it by herself. She needed help and she didn't have anybody that she felt qualified to help her. In that episode, she also told Neil, you know, look, we've got too much of a history. It didn't work out. It's not going to work out again. I don't want to go there. So even though Neil seems to think that the primary reason she hasn't pursued the box was because she needed Neil. I think it's probably a combination of all three things. Now, there may be one element of that that is more the case than the others, but I think it's all three combined. But despite whatever concerns she has, whatever reservations she has about working with Neil, and despite whatever she said about not being interested in pursuing the box, she does appear to at least be somewhat interested. And she, she tells Neil, hey, you know, I'm, I'm willing to consider it, but you have to prove that you can get out of the anklet before we even, even take this discussion to the, the next level. If you can't prove that, then there's nothing even to, to discuss. And so that's where she leaves it as she leaves. Next, the episode jumps to the FBI office where we see Neil arriving for work 20 minutes late. And as he's coming on in through the doors, Peter's there waiting for him. And Peter spots a long brunette hair on the back of Neil's jacket. Doesn't say anything about it, just chastises him for being late. Once Neil gets in through the door, he spots an unfamiliar face, asks Peter about it, and Peter says that is FBI agent Kimberly Rice. And he says he's not a fan. Nothing specific is said about why he's not a fan. He says, well, she's a rising star on the Bureau. She works in kidnapping and missing persons. Neither of those is really, neither of those really qualifies as a reason for Peter to dislike her. So obviously there is more to Peter's attitude toward her than what he says here, but he's not a fan and she's there to see Neil. Hughes comes out of his office with Rice and he gives the double finger point to Peter and Neil. Follow me into the conference room, guys. Come on, let's go. Rice introduces herself to Neil and he gives her a very obviously insincere compliment. And then she begins to brief them about the kidnapping case. Lindsay Glass has been kidnapped. She's the daughter of Stuart Glass, who is the CEO of Atlantic Partners. And it was that company whose bonds Neil was convicted of forging. Since Neil is working with Peter in white collar and kidnapping is not really a white collar crime, Neil asks the obvious question. What's this kidnapping got to do with me? You have a history with our prime suspect. Ryan Wilkes. 
You know him? Neil. Yeah, yeah, he runs his own little crime syndicate. They work everything from grand theft auto to extortion. And you used to run with him? That's a rumor. Yeah. We may have tried working together once, but our styles didn't mesh. What makes you think Wilkes took the girl? Chatter from our CIs puts Wilkes in town. We also found traces of plasticine clay in a lock at the crime scene. Someone made a copy of the key. Yeah, it's Wilkes' M.O., and that's why we need Neil. Neil? Stuart Glass likes to eat lunch at Restaurante Lorenzo every Thursday. At least he used to. There's only one valet there. Makes it easy to get your hands on his keys. If Wilkes wanted to get into his house, he'd probably start there. I'd check the security tapes. That's good. That's good. I'd like to borrow Caffrey for the remainder of my case. If Wilkes is behind this, don't you think it's dangerous to put Caffrey on his trail? Caffrey's proven he can take care of himself. Neil, starting immediately, you report to Agent Rice. All right, great. Now that we're all on the same page, let's start with an easy one. When's the last time you saw Wilkes? Probably when he tried to kill me. Now, Rice is not openly slimy. She's not openly hostile or anything like that, but she doesn't really come off all that trustworthy. She tells Peter that she wants to borrow Neil for the remainder of the case. And Peter doesn't, it doesn't set well with Peter. He's, he's obviously suspicious. He uses the excuse of, well, if Wilkes is behind this, don't you think it's dangerous to put Caffrey on his trail? Hughes, I'll say he comes to Neil's defense. He says, you know, Neil's proven that he can take care of himself. So it probably isn't all that dangerous for him, or at least he knows how to handle the situation. There may be a little bit of a go along to get along attitude in Hughes's response, but I think that there is some sincerity behind it because Neil has proven he's capable of taking care of himself. And I think we've seen over the last half of the season that Hughes has developed a somewhat begrudging respect for Neil and his abilities doesn't fully trust him again. After all, back in the previously referenced home invasion episode, Hughes still thinks that Neil might have been responsible for the theft of the uh, Jade elephant or involved, or at least involved somehow. So he, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily fully trust Neil, but he has enough faith in him that he, he doesn't think that he doesn't think that the situation is going to be too much for Neil to handle. And since everybody's going to be standing there watching and monitoring what's going on, I guess he figures that it's, it's, a, it's a fair plan and they can trust Neil on that as far as, as this particular case goes. Rice and Neil head over to the Gless home and they begin interviewing Stuart Gless. Or, or more correctly, Agent Rice begins interviewing Gless and Neil jumps in and Rice doesn't like it at all. What was that? Sorry. Remind me again, how much training do you have interviewing the parents of kidnapping victims? You brought me into this. To consult, not to take the lead with my witness. Your witness? Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were on the same team. Why don't we get something clear right here, right now? You're a tool in my belt. Understand? You will listen and observe. If I ask you to do anything, you do it. If I have a question, answer it. What if I have a question? Then you run it by me, but you do not, under any circumstance, address my witness. God, sound like a really great deal. But I think it'll work better if uh, you treat me more like a partner. See, the way Peter and I do it I, is... I don't care how you and Peter do it. I care how you and Agent Rice do it. Just want to help find his daughter. You want to help? Well, then keep your mouth shut unless I ask you to open it. Okay? Oh, 
What? Permission to speak? What? You haven't found any of Wilkes' prints around the house, have you? See, he likes to use found items from the target location to cover his tracks. Why don't you check the rubber gloves under the kitchen sink? Do you have any more brilliant ideas rumbling around that head of yours? Well, I think that's it for now. Good. Then go wait in the car. Rice is not showing herself to be a person who likes to work with anybody else, a person who wants to view anyone else as capable. She wants to be the person in charge without question, without challenge, and wants to be the person in the spotlight. After all, the questions Neil was asking were, were reasonable questions, questions that she hadn't asked. And her response to Neil is, you're a tool. She's actually treating him more like a trained dog. Go wait in the car. Be sure and roll down the windows uh, so you've got some fresh air coming in and you don't get too hot, but you're a dog. Go wait in the car. She may be a rising star, but she's certainly not the kind of person who's going to make any friends and not the kind of person who is going to encourage anybody to want to work with her because she doesn't want to work with anyone. She wants them to work for her. After she sends Neil down to wait in the car, next things jump to the Burke home where Elizabeth is talking to Peter. She is telling him about some problems that she's having with an event that she is preparing or had prepared. And Peter obviously isn't paying attention, so she decides to test how well he's paying attention. And so I told him I would spend the night with him for a million dollars. I'd have to run it by my husband first. But honey, it's a million dollars. What do you think? I think, I think that's great. I don't think that's great. What, what did you ask me? Okay, admit it. You're worried about Neil. No, I am not worried about Neil. What's the problem? Oh, something feels wrong about this case. I don't trust Rice. She's some hotshot from another division. She's Neil's handler on this one. Well, honey, if you're worried about it, go down there and check it out. Yeah, it's bad form to crash another agent's crime scene. That's never stopped you before. Once again, Elizabeth is pushing Peter to get involved in a case that is not his. She did that back in Flip of the Coin when she brought her friend Dana to see Peter after her husband had been accused of, of stealing and smuggling in artifacts. It was a case that had already been assigned to somebody else. Somebody else was investigating it, but she pushed him to get involved with it. And here she is doing that same thing again. And really, I don't think the motivation is all that different. In Flip of the Coin, it was to help her friend Dana. In this one, it's to help her friend, Neil. Peter has expressed reservations about the case, about Agent Rice, about the whole situation. So clearly he's worried about Neil and Neil's safety in this one. So her response is, well, go get involved. Find some excuse to get involved. So again, Elizabeth is, is proving that she isn't just a bystander in Peter's life as an agent. She is a participant. She is a catalyst. She is a motivator. So Peter decides to go ahead and wander on down in the area of the Gless home and he finds Neil sitting in the car like a good dog. And Neil says, Hey, I'd, I'd like to stretch my legs. And Peter says, Hey, why don't you stretch your legs? They get out or Neil gets out and they start looking around and they spot a couple of locations where somebody who was a, a lookout would have probably been planted. Neil points out the one that's most likely and they go over there and they find some evidence. Well, Rice comes out of the house, spots them, and they tell her about the evidence that they found. And the evidence points to an underground casino where Wilkes likes to hang out. And so Rice says, hey, let's go clubbing. She also warns Peter, hey, get out of my case. Next time I find you at my crime scene, I'm filing a report or, or basically a complaint. And Peter quite sarcastically says, 
well, you can't tell, but right now, deep down, I'm petrified. So he is, I'm not going to say he's calling her bluff, but he is calling her out. Clearly, he does not like rice. And he's not really doing a whole lot to hide it. He doesn't trust rice. And he's not doing a whole lot to hide it. Next, we see Mozzie and Neil talking about the situation and how it's not really such a smart idea for Neil to get involved in a case like this, especially since the pantsuit, as he calls her, calls Agent Rice, is using Neil as bait. And Neil says, look, this is my one chance to prove to Alex that I can get the anklet off. Of course, Mozzie still isn't happy about it. I mean, I think he understands the reasoning, but he's not happy about it. Well, the conversation ends with the announcement that Rice is there waiting for Neil. And next we see Rice and Neil sitting in a car outside of the underground club location. Rice tells Neil, hey, go scout it out. See what you can find out. See what you can see. See if you can get in. Neil says, uh, with this, with this anklet on? Nah, I don't think that's going to work. So Rice says, I already thought of that. Here's some scissors. Cut it off. Well, Rice apparently didn't really bother to let anybody know, or at least not Peter, because the anklet goes off, indicating that Neil had cut the anklet, and he's surprised. He didn't know it was happening. But Jones says, hey, Rice got it cleared. Peter doesn't like that. He doesn't like the fact that things are being withheld from him, especially since they involve his guy, Neil. While Neil and Rice continue to work on the club, the underground casino, Peter has a conversation in the FBI offices with Gless, and it's disturbing. Peter again finds out some things that he didn't know about, things that were being withheld from him. I just hope this goes right. It helps. I can walk you through it. What are you worried about most? The meeting. The meeting. What troubles you about that? The kidnapper calls and asks for a meeting with Caffrey in exchange for Lindsay. That seems too easy. Yeah. Excuse me. Peter, I'm kind of in the middle of something right now, okay? You need to get out of there right now. What are you talking about? Neil. You're the ransom. Neil. Neil. So here's another thing that Peter didn't know about. Neil was the bait. Or Neil wasn't the bait. He was the ransom. And the whole thing was a setup. So Peter was right to not trust Rice. Peter's reservations about Rice are proven to be correct. And when he hears what Stuart Gless has to say about all of this being prearranged about the kidnapper wanting to meet with Neil specifically, Peter, Peter, uh, obviously he's not happy. And I think now we know why Peter doesn't like Rice. Rice plays fast and loose with other people's lives. She doesn't really seem to care about the risk that she's putting people's lives into as long as she gets her result, as long as she looks good, and that's all that matters to her, apparently. After Peter calls Neil too late and he hears Neil getting zapped with the taser, he's not happy, he is angry, and he is going to make sure Rice knows about it. Okay, listen up, people. For the foreseeable future, you belong to me. I need traffic feeds from here to Yankee Stadium. You sold Stadium. them out so you could get your picture in the paper. 
You hung Neil out to dry for a gold star on your resume. You better watch it, Burke. When we found that coat check stub for the club, you already knew it was going down there, didn't you? But you kept your mouth shut so everything could go according to plan. What's going on here? She made a backroom deal with Wilkes, the girl in exchange for Neil. Right, is that true? A man we believe to be Wilkes contacted Gluss. He said that he would give Lindsay back if he could have a face-to-face -face with Caffrey. A face-to-face? -face. And you really think Wilkes would make good on that? It was our one shot to get a lead on Wilkes and follow him back to the girl. I had agents all over that street. And how did that work out for you? Did you get any leads on the girl? Wilkes made the grab in our one operational blind spot. Then you're no longer in charge. Peter, you're officially a part of the show. I don't want to hear it, Rice. You report to Burke until you find Caffrey and that girl. Well, when Rice comes into the office, talk about presumptuous. She got Hughes's permission to use Neil. She did not get Hughes's permission to take over his office. She did not get Hughes's permission to take over Peter's people. But that's exactly what she's trying to do when she walks in. It's, okay, you're my people. Now you listen to me. I don't care what anybody else tells you. I'm in charge. No, you're not, Rice. You're there as a guest of the White Collar Division utilizing their assets with their permission. You're not in charge of those people. And when Peter confronts Rice about what she did, she, in the typical fashion of a person who does not want anyone to confront them because they think they're better than everybody else, tries to threaten Peter by saying, you watch it. I'm going to go tell mom and dad on you if you don't stop talking mean to me. I'm in charge which is a continuation of her attitude when she walked in and she, she tried to take over and start telling everybody what they were going to do. This is arrogance. This is conceit. This is self-importance. This is, this is not, this is not a, a person who wants to work with other people. This is a person who thinks that they are basically God's gift to the FBI and that everybody should just be thankful that she's there. She's not a nice person. And of course, Peter's reading her the riot act. He's just livid. And Hughes hears it. He comes down and says, what's going on? And Peter tells him, she made a backdoor deal with Wilkes. She basically handed over Neil as a sacrificial lamb. It was planned. And she did this without even letting anybody know, including Neil, the guy who's going to be walking into the trap. And her, her excuse is, well, you know, we think it was Wilkes who contacted us and said he, he would give Lindsay back if, if he could have a face-to-face -face with Neil. Well, who did you think it was if it wasn't, if it wasn't uh, Wilkes? After all, who knew about the kidnapping? Obviously, Lindsay Gless. She was the victim. Obviously, Stuart Glass, the father, and the rest of the family. The FBI. And, of course, the kidnapper knew. So who else would it have been but the kidnapper? And if they were reasonably certain it was Wilkes, where was the question in that in her mind? But she's trying to make out as if, well, we didn't know for certain. You know, it was a possibility, but... You know, it could have been something else. And then she says, well, you know, it was our one chance to get a lead on Wilkes and get the girl back. I had agents all over the place. He shouldn't have been able to get Neil, you know, and take him away. And it, it, it shouldn't, shouldn't have gone south on us. And when Hughes says, well, how did it happen? Oh, well, we, you know, we had this one operational blind spot. Oh, you did? How did you have an operational blind spot? That's my question. That couldn't have possibly have been an accident because if you knew it was there, if you knew there was a blind spot, why didn't you cover it beforehand? There's only one explanation or actually two explanations. One, 
you didn't do your job properly and realize that there was a blind spot there. And so you're trying to make excuses and, and cover your backside by saying, well, you know, it was, a, it was an operational blind spot. We, how could we possibly have known that? Yeah, well, you'd have known that if you'd have done your job. The only other explanation is you knew it was a blind spot. You intentionally left the blind spot. Yeah, I think Peter was more than right to have his doubts and dislikes for Rice. Yeah, I don't, I don't like Rice either. So Hughes takes, uh, he doesn't take Rice off the case. He just jerks her chain and says, you're no longer in charge. You're just a gopher for Peter. Yeah, you can tell from the look on her face. She does not like that. Does not like that at all. Next, we see Wilkes and Neil in the back of a van, and we learn something about their history and how Neil had basically kind of ripped off Wilkes for $500,000, as a matter of fact. But as we have already learned up to this point, Wilkes is the kind of guy that has no problem with, or maybe even likes, using violence to get his, his uh, goals accomplished. And that is not what Neil is about at all. And so whatever they're falling out, uh, I would say that Neil figured that the 500 grand that he got from ripping off Wilkes was probably his due, or at least, like I say, in his mind, it was probably his due. And it was probably something, we don't know the details of what went on, but I'm going to guess here that it's something that Neil did to stop Wilkes from doing whatever it was he'd been doing. Stop a situation where, where Wilkes was going to be employing some violence, because that's, that just is part of Neil's character. Wilkes takes Neil out on the street across from a, a travel agency and says, look, I need to know the itinerary of somebody named Tom Slows. Go in and get it. Oh, and as motivation, if you don't get it in two minutes, I'm going to kill the lady at the travel agency. So if she dies, it's your fault. That's, that's a popular form of logic when somebody is trying to manipulate somebody else. I'm going to do something bad. And if you don't stop me, it's your fault that it happens. Yeah, no, not really. But Neil realizes he doesn't have a whole lot of choice at this point. He's got to do what he can to get that information because a woman's life is at stake and he doesn't want to see any violence going on here. So he goes in, he tries to sweet talk the lady and it doesn't work to begin with. But then he spots something on her desk that he uses as kind of a way to build a fake bond with her, appeal to her sense of camaraderie and to persuade her to give him the information he wants. And that thing is a stuffed animal named Herky the Hawk. Now, Herky the Hawk is the mascot for the University of Iowa Hawkeyes. And if you are familiar at all with Iowa, you know that it is called the Hawkeye State and people from Iowa are called Hawkeyes. Now, the name Hawkeye was popularized by author James Fenimore Cooper, who wrote about frontier hero Natty Bumpo, who was also called Hawkeye. And that was part of the Leather Stocking Tales series, which included books such as The Last of the Mohicans. And at various times, other things appeared using the name Hawkeye, uh, such as letters to newspapers and magazines. When the Wisconsin Territory was being discussed as being included into the United States uh, in a, a move that would result in the territory being admitted as the states of Wisconsin and Iowa, a letter to the Milwaukee Advertiser was uh, sent in and it was signed Hawkeye. And that letter said that we are willing and desirous hereafter to be known and distinguished by the style, name, and title of Hawkeyes, a term more harmonious to the ear, more brief and convenient than that of Wisconsinians or Wisconsinites. About the same time, James Edwards, or James G. Edwards, who founded the Fort Madison Patriot, wrote on March 24th of 1838, if a division of the territory, 
that is the Wisconsin Territory, be affected, we propose that Iowans take the cognomen of Hawkeyes. Our etymology can thus be more definitely traced than that of the Wolverines, Suckers, Gophers, etc., and we shall rescue from oblivion a memento, at least, of the name of the Old Chief. The reference to Old Chief was in reference to Edward's friend, Chief Blackhawk, who was a war leader and a warrior of the Sac American Indian tribe who lost the Blackhawk War in 1832, and he later died in Fort Madison. Now, Chief Blackhawk, or as he was uh, named when he was born, Makataimishikayakek. I know, I mispronounced that. I apologize. It was it was a try. Failed try, but it was a try. Uh, anyway, he had this really long name originally, um, but it meant be a large black hawk, which is the source of the name, obviously, uh, Black Hawk. Although he had not inherited an important historic sacred bundle from his father, and he was not a hereditary civil chief, Black Hawk earned his status as a war chief or a captain by his actions. Uh, he led raiding and war parties as a young man, and then a band of SAC warriors during the Black Hawk War of 1932. Now, University of Iowa, founded in 1847, it is the state's oldest institution of higher education, and it is located along the Iowa River in Iowa City. It has been a member of the Association of American Universities since 1909, and the Big Ten Conference since 1899, and is home of one of the most acclaimed academic medical centers in the country, as well as being globally recognized in the study and craft of writing. It's known for excellence in both arts and sciences, and offers world-class undergraduate, graduate, and professional academic programs. As I said, Neil spotted a Herky the Hawk mascot stuffed animal on uh, the travel agent's desk. But an interesting thing about Herky the Hawk he was not always the Hawkeye's mascot. It gets a little bit weird here. Despite being known as the Hawkeye's, a live black bear cub named Birch was the University of Iowa's football team's mascot from 1908 till 1910. Yeah, black bear has nothing to do with Hawkeye's, has nothing to do with hawks. According to an article in the Iowa City Citizen, Birch the bear hailed from Moscow, Idaho. He was secured by head football coach Mark Catlin, while visiting his father's ranch in northern Wisconsin. Birch was a playful and good-natured bear. Okay. When Birch arrived, he was several months old and about as large as an average-sized dog. Well, apparently, upon Birch's arrival, things started going well for the team. First of all, players had fun wrestling with the bear, and he traveled with the team on every road trip. And of course, the team hoped that Birch would bring them good luck as he prowled the sidelines of opponents' fields across the Midwest. The first game where Birch made his appearance was held on the eastern side of the Iowa River at Iowa Field and was a victory for the school's team over their competitor, Coe College, in a historic 92-0 victory. And that would become the school's second largest margin of victory in their entire history, second only after their 95-0 victory a few years later over Iowa State Teachers College, which is now known as the University of Northern Iowa. But despite the fact that things started out good, uh, things went downhill from there. In Columbus, Missouri, on October 17th of 1908, Birch, in apparent retaliation for being teased by the Columbia crowd, bit an Iowa freshman with his filed teeth. Later in the day, as Iowa substitute tackle Fat Johnson escorted the bear around the stadium, one individual poked Birch in the back, and apparently Birch wheeled and supposedly harmlessly wrapped himself around uh, this individual's leg. 
a city marshal ran to the scene and threatened to make an arrest if the bear wasn't muzzled. University of Iowa lost the game 10 to 5. Uh, the team bounced back in Sioux City on their next game, but the season ultimately ended with four consecutive losses. Things didn't improve for the Hawkeye football team or for Birch in the 1909 season. When the season started, Birch was a year bigger and more aggressive. The Daily Iowan reported that Birch had grown to full size and had developed a somewhat dangerous disposition, as they put it. The team as a whole faltered, going two and four on the season. Birch ultimately met an untimely death when he escaped from his pen, was lost for over a week, and then apparently fell through the ice on the Iowa River and drowned. A local taxidermist who was unable to preserve Birch's body reportedly did preserve the head, which was reportedly placed in the school's museum. However, according to the University of Iowa Library's website, that may not be the case either. Apparently, the report is that if Birch did indeed drown, his head would probably have been bloated and therefore not suitable for taxidermy. And according to the Press Citizen article in April of 2018, uh, nobody's quite sure where Birch's head or bones may be. After the demise of Birch, the school decided they needed a more appropriate mascot. And that mascot was Rex, a St. Bernard which again has absolutely nothing to do with hawks or anything to do with the term Hawkeye. Rex was the mascot from about 1927 to 1933 when he died of old age and was replaced by another dog, which was either a Great Dane or St. Bernard. The, apparently the information is somewhat inconclusive. And this new dog was named Rex II or Rex II. A sad end came to Rex II. In a seeming repeat of the death of Birch, Rex II reportedly fell through the Iowa River ice and drowned. And it was not until 1948 that Herky the Hawk came onto the scene. One of the professors who taught journalism at the school uh, entered a contest to create a new mascot for the school. And he entered a drawing of what would eventually become Herky. And then in the late 1950s, Herky made his first appearance on the sideline when Larry Herb of the fraternity Delta Tau Delta donned the very first Herky costume. And from then on, the students portraying Herky were always drawn from the Delta Tau Delta fraternity until they lost their charter in 1998 due to drug use and alcohol use. At that point, tryouts for Herky the Hawk were opened up to the entire student body. And in 1999, Angie Anderson and Carrie McDonald were the first female students chosen to portray the mascot at the games. Back in the episode, as I said, Neil uses the fact that he recognizes the stuffed animal mascot as being the University of Iowa mascot. He uses that as a basis for creating the story that he gives to the receptionist as to why he needs to have this information. And uh, eventually he, he softens her heart and she agrees to give him the information. While she's looking up the information, Neil says, I might know somebody who is interested in your rewards program. And so the next thing that happens is that Mozzie, a.k.a. Dante Haversham, receives a text offering him discounts on travel. And Mozzie tells June, as they're sitting there playing a game of Parcheesi, uh, sorry, I've got to go. I, I'm not forfeiting the game. I'm just letting you know that I just got to go. Back out on the street, Neil and Wilkes have a little bit of a confrontation. Neil is deliberately trying to push Wilkes's button in an attempt what or what seems to be and turns out to be an attempt to get Wilkes to show him the girl. He tells Wilkes, I don't think you got her. If you don't prove to me that you've got her, I've got no reason to keep doing this. I mean, you might as well just kill me right here and now. I'm I, I don't I don't I think you're bluffing there, Wilkes. I think you're bluffing. And Wilkes says, Now let's uh let's go prove the point. And they get back in the van and Wilkes tells his assistant, his lackey, 
to zap Neil with the taser again. Neil tries to get him to stop, but zap. Back at the FBI offices, Peter is running a conference with a number of agents trying to figure out where their next move is. Rice comes in and says, hey, I, here's this DVD. It was found in the mail, found in, in uh, Gless's mail. It was sent before Caffrey was taken. It might be useful. So they start watching the video, and it is Lindsay Gless holding up the newspaper in the classic kidnapper method to show that, yes, this isn't an old video. This is the date that you can see on the newspaper so that you know that we're, we're serious. We actually do have her. And as they're watching the video, they are looking for telltale signs, something to give them an indication as to where it was being filmed. What they notice is that it's in an old building that has basically a place that's, that's in such bad shape that it is, as they say, falling where it stands. It's got cracks all over the walls, has funky windows, it's pre-war construction, and they hear a foghorn. No, it's, it's a tugboat horn. So they know that she's in an old rundown building somewhere near the waterfront. But as Rice points out, there are more than 500 miles of waterfront in the New York area. So who knows? I mean, the fact that it's a specific type of building, a specific age of building helps, but it still leaves an awful lot of space, awful lot of area to be uh, checked out and to be searched. Next, we see Neil in that building with Lindsay. And in what is reminiscent of a line from the original Star Wars movie, Neil tells Lindsay, I'm here to rescue you. Lindsay gives a similar response that Princess Leia gave. It's like, oh, really? You're here to rescue me? Who's going to rescue you? And Neil says, look, I'm working with the FBI. The agent who's in charge of this investigation or the guy who's going to try and find me is the best. He'll find me. We're going to be okay. And as Neil and Lindsay are talking, Neil is checking out the guard, checking out the situation, basically taking an inventory of where they're at, what they have available, just all the information he can get to try and help him formulate some sort of an idea as to what his next move could be. And of course, in the shot, we are shown somewhat prominently the pistol with the silencer. Wilkes comes back and says, are you ready for round two, Neil? And Neil, of course, asks, well, what's round two? Wilkes doesn't want to tell him, as he says, he doesn't want to spoil the surprise, but it's either you're in or you're out. I've already shown you the girl. You know, she's alive. You know, I'm not bluffing about having her. Are you going to do what I say? Or am I going to just kill you both right here and now? Now it's, it's obvious that Wilkes wants or needs Neil to accomplish whatever it is that he's, he's trying to accomplish. And so I guess you could say that there's a little bit of a bluff there. He's trying to bluff Neil into doing it upon the threat of killing him or the girl or both. Rationally speaking, the girl is the only leverage that, or the girl is the biggest leverage that Wilkes has over Neil. If he kills her, then the only leverage Wilkes has left over Neil is Neil's own life. And of course, if Wilkes really needs Neil to accomplish this, he's not going to kill Neil. So it doesn't make sense that he would actually kill Lindsay because that would leave him with very little leverage to work with. So his threats, his implied threats, his, his direct threats are really kind of a bluff still, but it's the kind of situation where obviously and understandably Neil doesn't want to take the chance of calling his bluff and being wrong. So Neil agrees to participate in part two. Meanwhile, Elizabeth has called Peter and said, hey, you need to come home right now. It's important. Peter tries to beg off. He's got too much work to do. They're working on this kidnap case. And she says, no, you need to come right now. Mozzie's here. And it's about Neil. So Peter heads to the house and meets with Mozzie to find out what he's got going on and what it has to do with the case 
and what it has to do with Neil. Honey! In here. You know, Mozzie still won't tell me what he does for a living. Do you know? I know enough not to ask. Why are you here? I received this. Look at the email address. Dante Eversham. Remember the alias I gave when Neil introduced us? That's a distress signal. Dante Haversham. We first encountered that alias many, many episodes ago, back in the Book of Hours, I believe it was. Since then, and up to this point, to the best of my recollection, there has been no direct evidence that this was not, in fact, Mozzie's actual name. Now, it didn't seem like it would be reasonably Mozzie's actual name. It did seem like it would probably be the kind of name that was an alias, but I believe this is the first actual direct acknowledgement that we have that that was, in fact, an alias, and that apparently it's used as kind of a distress signal between him and Neil, or as kind of a as kind of a warning, hey, things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and that's just kind of a code to be aware, be alert, be on your toes because something's not right here. We also see a bit of Mozzie's paranoia on display here again, where he indicates that he thought Elizabeth's company, Burke Premier Events, was a front for Peter. Now, presumably, he knew enough about the company to know that Elizabeth was involved, so it kind of makes you wonder, well, how did you, how would you think that it's a front for Peter if she's involved? But I, I, I suppose in a paranoid mind, it all makes sense. Anyway, he shows Peter the message, says it's a distress signal. Neil's in trouble. We jump back in the van, and Wilkes is telling Neil, hey, you're going to pretend to be Thomas Lowe's chauffeur. We've sidetracked his actual limo driver. You're going to take his place. You're going to relieve him of a briefcase. Now, Wilkes doesn't tell him what's in the briefcase. And Neil, of course, seems to be cautious about the whole situation because Wilkes is not going to be present. Wilkes is going to be hiding out somewhere. So I guess at this point, Neil knows that something really, really bad is about to happen. He's in the middle of it, but he doesn't know what. He doesn't have a clue as to what's going on. So it's... It's going to be kind of hard for Neil to figure out how to play the game when he doesn't even know what the game is. Wilkes sends him on his way and said, hey, you've got this deadline. If you're not there on the dot or no later than on the dot, the girl dies. Back in the FBI office, based on the distress signal that Neil sent to Mozzie, the agents are reviewing videotape from the travel agency and they see Neil there. They find out what was going on, find out what he was after. And they discover that Thomas Lowe's, the uh, focus of, of Wilkes' interest, is actually a criminal known as Edward Riley. Apparently, Riley is the, as Peter says, go-to guy when VIP criminals want something valuable moved. They know it's something big that's going down. They are guessing that Wilkes is trying to rip off Riley, but they don't know any of the details. And, of course, the whole thing is that Neil is being used as the patsy and as kind of the buffer to insulate Wilkes from contacting Riley so that if it all goes bad, Neil's the guy that takes the hit, Wilkes walks away, hands clean. So they do some research. They find out that Riley is coming in on a flight from Sydney, Australia. The flight's due to land in about an hour. And so they head off to hopefully catch up with Neil to at least give him a heads up as to what's going on. You happen to know where I can catch a shuttle to the city? No need for the cloak and dagger, Peter. Wilkes isn't here. We're here to help you get out of this mess, Catherine. Hmm, it's kind of ironic coming from you, Agent Rice. Listen, Slow's guy you're going after, it's Edward Riley. Damn. I wonder Wilkes doesn't want to be anywhere near this. 
You go through with this. Riley will hunt you down. If I don't get his briefcase to Wilkes by four, he'll kill Lindsay. You sure about that? Her guard wasn't wearing a mask, and he has a silencer. So you saw her? Yeah. Where? I don't know. They tased me. Please tell me you're close to finding her. We know she's in an old building near the water. Her guard was eating mushu pork from a restaurant called Walk of Fire. Your Chinese takeout near the water. All right, we can work with that. Come on. Hey, I'm staying here. If you don't get to Lindsay in time. Yeah. It's a two-way transceiver. Jones will keep an eye on you. His team will stay out of sight. Don't do anything stupid. <laughs> Too late. Good luck. It's understandable that Neil is unwilling to accept Rice's, I'm going to say, attempt at an apology. Uh, Rice, she doesn't really strike me as the kind of person who will apologize, at least not readily. But her her comment, hey, you know, we're here to help you get out of this. I mean, it's, it's not really a, an apology, but I, you know, I guess it kind of is. But of course, Neil's not happy in any of it. He's, he, throughout the entire conversation, every time uh, Rice says something, he's very, very cold to her. Uh, and, and that's understandable. It's, that's more than understandable under the circumstances, but it does seem that Rice is trying to, trying to make amends, at least to some degree. She recognizes that she got Neil into a situation that was, but she got manipulated. She got manipulated by Wilkes, and as a result, Neil's in a situation where she had never intended him to go, a situation she had never intended him to be in. And so I, I think she's, she's a bit contrite. I, I don't think she's totally there yet, but I think, she's, I, I think she's been knocked down a peg or two, and she's realizing she screwed up bad. Now, maybe it's just that she's simply trying to do a CYA where she's trying to put a spin on the situation so that she can come out looking better than she might otherwise if things go south with Neil. If things go south with Neil, uh, she's in a real bad situation. And so if she can get him out of it, it, it won't be quite so bad for her. And there may be a bit of that in there, but I think that she is somewhat sincere. But as I said, Neil's just not having it. Well, somehow Mozzie figured out where Neil is. Maybe he followed Peter and Rice. Maybe he... Whatever, How, however he came up with, with the information, Mozzie knows that Neil's at the airport. And so he heads there and meets with Neil and they try to figure out how, how they're going to get Neil out of this. And the only thing that they can come up with is to not make Riley mad, not to rip off Riley in a way that he knows he's been ripped off, but to make him voluntarily let himself be ripped off. And so they decide to pull what's called the zigzag scam, where basically somebody pretends to be a fake cop and arrest somebody on fake charges and then tell them, well, you know, we'll look the other way if you give us something, money or whatever. And so that's, that's the plan. That's what they decide to go with. And Mozzie decides that he needs to get into disguise to do that. And so he takes off his glasses and puts on an identical second pair of glasses. Wow. He's a chameleon. Neil, in his chauffeur's uniform, is standing at the entryway with a sign waiting for Thomas Lowe's, a.k.a. Edward Riley. And when he shows up, he introduces himself as the driver and offers to take his bag. But of course, Lowe's, a.k.a. Riley, doesn't want him to. He just says, no, no, uh, this, is, this is good. I'll hang on to it. As they are walking out of the airport, Mozzie shows up and introduces himself as Agent Haversham, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Of course, Neil says, well, he's an agent too. 
And Riley slash Lowe's or Lowe's slash Riley says, is this a joke? And, and of course, Mozzie has to be a smart aleck. He says, do I look like I'm joking, Elvis? So yeah, Mozzie, I, I guess when Mozzie gets into a situation like that, his go-to response is sarcasm. Uh, we, we've seen that before. So I, I guess that's his go-to response. In their characters as customs agents, they look through Riley's bag and it looks like an ordinary bag, just as Mozzie says, an overnight bag. It's got clothes and other things like that in it until Neil spots a fake inner liner, which he pulls out and there he finds dozens of prepaid credit cards, gold cards. And of course they, they tell him that he's in big trouble. But Mozzie, playing the character of the bad cop, starts having his doubts about whether they should, you know, really turn these in like they're supposed to. Or, you know, they could use some of these cards themselves. They play the game of pretending that they're thinking about doing the right thing or taking the cards. With Mozzie being more eager than than Neil, who is playing the more of a good cop. Of course, Neil says ultimately, "Okay, fine, let's let's go for it." And so they they complete the charade. And Lowe's, aka Riley, says, "Hey, can I have one card so I can you know get back home?" Uh, so you know he's he's obviously falling for it. And so Neil gets out of there with the cards without ever actually having stolen them from Riley. Riley just voluntarily gave them up, which was, of course, the plan, because then you want to be able to tell the guy if he comes back at you later, well, hey, I, I didn't take them from you. You gave them to me. Next thing we see is Peter and Agent Kimberly Rice searching the dock area that they think where uh, Lindsay Gless may be being held. But there's a lot of buildings and they all look very, very similar. They all look like they could be potentially the building, or at least it looks like they're in the right place, but they're not finding the right building. So Peter tells Neil, hey, you got to stall. You got to buy us more time. And Neil says, I, I don't know if I can, but it's got to happen because they need more time. They need time to find the building, need time to stage an assault and take down the bad guys and get Lindsay Gless out. Neil meets with Wilkes, who then basically throws the whole deal overboard. He refuses to tell Neil where the girl is because obviously he doesn't intend for her to walk away from it, which is why why the guard or the, uh, the member of his gang that he had watching her didn't worry about wearing a face mask. If you're going to kill your witness, you don't need to hide your identity. You only need to hide it if you're going to let them go and they have the potential of identifying you if they see your face. So he's, he's not going to let her go. He's going to kill her. Of course, Neil isn't happy about that and he wants to do something, but there's, there's nothing he can do about it at the moment other than just try to slow the process down. He tosses the briefcase to Wilkes who opens it and finds nothing. Neil has put the fake inside liners back into position and taken all the clothes out. So there's nothing in there or so it seems. And of course, Wilkes isn't happy. Now, while this is going on, of course, Peter and Kimberly Rice think they have found the building. Neil is still, of course, trying to stall with Wilkes. He's trying to throw up roadblocks and distract Wilkes so that he doesn't make the phone call to have the girl killed. And he tries to do that by telling Wilkes, well, hey, I've turned your guys on you. They're not your guys anymore. They're my guys. And of course, Wilkes isn't falling for it. He apparently knows his crew well enough to know that they, they wouldn't turn on him. So he makes the phone call. He says to his guy, do it. Get rid of her. We're done with her. We don't need her anymore. 
And just as he's ready to pull the trigger, Peter and his team burst in through the building and save the girl. So Wilkes hears it on the phone. He gets angry. He picks up the briefcase and in anger throws it at the the building next to him. And it hits the roll-up door that's part of that building. And it bursts open and all the cards fall out. And Wilkes realizes that Neil's been trying to play him. And he's going to put Neil in the ground. He pulls the gun, points it at him and says... I guess that makes you obsolete. Neil says, I, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He points to two red dots on Wilkes's chest and says, see, I got friends with sniper rifles too. And of course, it's Jones and his team that are there that they've been following Neil. And so they get Wilkes. Well, Lindsay Gless is reunited with her dad and Agent Rice is over there discussing something with them we don't know. And Neil and Peter are discussing Rice and Rice turns and looks at them. And gives him the double finger. Come here. Just like Hughes did at the beginning. I'm not sure what to make of that. I, I don't know if she just, if that's a normal characteristic for her, a normal behavior for her, or if she's unconsciously mimicking Hughes, or if she's deliberately mimicking Hughes. She's hard to read at this point because she does seem to have changed. She, she does seem to have backed off her aggressive, offensive personality, at least somewhat. But I can't really believe that she's entirely changed. Not not that quickly, not that completely. So I think maybe there's a little bit of a, I think maybe it's a little bit of an intentional mimic as if to say, yeah, well, I might've been taken off the case, but I'm still top dog. Even though I can't prove it right now, I'm still top dog. Of course, it does appear that she backed off as far as wanting to take credit. Apparently told Stuart Gless that it was Neil and Peter that got your daughter back. So she's apparently not trying to take full credit for it, or maybe even not most of the credit. It seems, it seems that she gave the credit to Neil and Peter and is kind of staying out of the limelight on it. Agent Rice uh, comes up and tells Neil, Hey, that was a great thing you did today. No hard feelings. And Neil, of course, isn't ready to forgive and forget. And he says, Hey, don't push it. And you can understand why he, he would be hesitant to just forgive her because she did set him up pretty badly, but at least he didn't confront her about it and make it a big deal at this point. Rice and Peter step aside and start talking, and Jones comes up, says, I've got Neil's anklet. Where is he? And they look around, and they can't find him. Well, it turns out that Neil has gone back to his apartment, and Alex is there, and they are discussing the fact that he was able to get out from the anklet, at least for a while, which proves to Alex that he can do it. So she kind of agrees that, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to go ahead and do this music box thing. But she is... I don't want to say she's changing the rules of the game at this point again, but she's certainly, she, she's not giving Neil anything. Uh, she says, we're going to do it together. I'm not going to tell you where it's at. I don't trust you. And when we get it, we're going to split it 50-50. And don't double cross me on this or you'll regret it. And of course, Neil says, hey, when did you become so distrusting? And she says, hey, it was Kate. It's when you and Kate and all that happened. That's when I got distrusting. Neil says, well, that's over now. But of course, she's not really ready to believe that either. But she leaves and they pretty much leave it at that. And, and they've concluded that they're going to do it together. They're not going to trust each other. And it's probably going to get messy, but they're going to do it. Neil shows back up at Peter's office. Forget something? Made it all the way home before I realized it was gone. Just slipped your mind. I came back. What did Alex have to say? You and Alex are planning to steal it, aren't you? 
She's just an old friend. She's a fence, Neil. She either knows how to find things or sell them. People like that don't trust the FBI. That's why you walked away without your anklet. I'm willing to look past your little trip off the reservation because you did well today. Just remember how it felt when you saw that girl in her father's arms. Moments like that are rare. But if you try to steal the music box, I will catch you. You know, you can either go back to wearing an orange jumpsuit and pining for the girl that got away, or you can stay here and do something good with your life. Your choice. So Peter basically tells Neil, I know what's happening. I don't have any evidence, but I know it. You know it. You know I know it. I'm telling you exactly what you're doing so that you know I know. He warns him. He says, don't try it because if you do, I'll catch you. And he's he's not meaning anything threatening by that in the way that Neil takes it. Neil takes it as as kind of a threat. Neil does have a tendency to uh, misinterpret things like that sometimes, but that's not how Peter meant it. And and actually, for a guy who is such a successful con man and has to be able to read people, he doesn't seem to be able to read Peter real well, at least not all the time. There are times that Peter is saying something and it's just a surface thing that he's saying and the real message is a subtext that's underneath that. And when he does that, it's pretty obvious. He he has a, a facial expression. He has a particular position and tilt to his head. He's got certain head gestures that he he makes along with those things. It's obvious when he's when he's talking to Neil and he's saying something that has a subtext that Neil is supposed to be picking up on. It's obvious. But then there's other times like this time where there's no subtext. What he is trying to tell Neil is right out there in front. And this wasn't intended as a threat in the way Neil seems to take it. It was simply a matter of fact. If you get it, if you take the music box, if you steal it, I'm going to catch you. But more importantly, you're going to mess up the thing you got going here. It's a good thing. And I know that it's a good thing. And you know that it's a good thing because remember how it felt when that girl ran into her dad's arms after you rescued her, after you helped rescue her. You know what you're doing is a good thing. And he's trying to appeal to Neil's better nature, his his more altruistic nature. It's in there, but it's just been buried so deep for so long that he keeps shoveling dirt back over it when it tries to appear. And Peter's trying to gently brush that dirt back off of it. And that's what he's doing here. He's not really trying to threaten Neil. He's just saying, remember what it felt like. Think about that. Hold on to that. And there is where the episode ends. I want to thank you for listening to this episode and remind you that you can go to the official website, which is at www.whitecollaredpc.com. And there you will find uh, show notes, links to the various websites I've mentioned. And you will also find the various ways that you can contact me. Thank you for listening and be sure and join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on episode number 14, the season finale out of the box. Until then, take care and God bless.